Okay, thank you all for coming. Uh, I know it's a trek down here. It's kind of like going through an amazing labyrinth, isn't it? Last time when we were down here, some guy said, well, I hadn't walked that far since I was in the Army. <laughs> so, so I appreciate it. We'll be back in the Great Hall next week, okay? We'll, so we'll see you up there next week. We have two more lessons after today uh, in this series on the parables of Christ. Today, the parables of the rich man and Lazarus. And by the way, it's not the same Lazarus that's in the, you know, the raising of Lazarus. Uh, you could say the difference there is that Lazarus that got raised by Jesus, he was a real historical character. And if you remember, the parables are fictitious stories. So uh, I think that Jesus used that name uh, for a real reason to, to like uh, even build up the contrast between the two guys because that's what this is all about is the contrasting the two lives and the two destinies of the rich guy and the Lazarus. Because Lazarus in Hebrew means the one that, the he that God helps. And so it's kind of like God helps this guy, but none of the people helped him, you know. So he got no help on earth, and then he got all the help when he got to heaven. So uh, it's also uh, one, of, you know, one of the most, I didn't realize this until we were studying the parables, but one of the main topics that's taught in the Bible, there's more in the Bible about money than anything else. And, of course, I didn't check it and, and, you know, do the statistics, but I'm just relying on some book I read. But uh, it really, there is a ton in there, and a lot of the parables have that element of greed and money and, and what have you in there. And uh, so it's interesting to think, especially... Uh, when you live where we do and, and have all the blessings that we have to look at these stories and, and see what's going on and what Jesus is really teaching about these parables. Uh, the last two parables, the guy uh, last week and then the guy today, is the guy that you don't want to be, and, and I'm pretty sure none of y'all are. It's the greedy guy who's a lover of money, and money has become his idol. You know, he's put money in the place of God. And so, just a quick disclaimer, uh, this is not about the evil of riches. This is about the evil of loving riches and putting them in the place of God. So, God, want, God has given you what you have, and we should enjoy it. But the danger of it is the idolatry. The danger of it is that we are so focused on the, the wealth and the property and what have you, that we lose our focus for God and our whole life becomes about our possessions. And there's a real danger to that uh, that the Bible talks about. And so it's important for us to study these topics. Uh, in thinking about, you know, some people that are greedy like the guy in the parable, I remember the joke about the pastor went to this super wealthy rich guy and asked him for a donation for the building fund. And the guy looked at the pastor and said, well, did you know that I have a, uh, a sister who's in the hospital? He said, no, I didn't know that. Well, did you know my parents were in a rest home? No, I didn't know that. Well, did you know both my kids are in college? No, I didn't know that. Well, did you know that my best friend is broke and needs help? No, I didn't know that. And he says, well, if I won't help them, why should I help you? <laughs> so... Yeah, 
I was looking at uh, this list of, you know, the, the old Johnny Carson deal. He was really rich, and y'all say, how rich was he? This guy is so rich that China owes him money. <laughs> all right, I also saw this deal. Uh, you've probably seen all the books that have been out. There's been quite a, in the last 25 years, there's been at least a dozen books out by guys who uh, have either had near-death experiences or they're writing about them. And it's typically someone whose heart stopped in the emergency room and, and he was, you know, called dead for like two or three minutes and then he somehow comes, is resuscitated by the shock paddles or something and he comes back to life. And they report having, you know, been to heaven or something, you know, and it's, wow. You know, we, we're kind of like reading this going, wow, this is incredible. And these people really believe they've been to heaven, and, and uh, there's so many of them, you can't help but think that it's true and that there really is a heaven. But another guy I was reading, this guy's a Dr. Rawlings in a Tennessee hospital. He's a cardiologist in a, in a large hospital, emergency room, and he, got, he had it happen so many times that he said, well, I'm going to start interviewing these people right when they come back, immediately after uh, these, these near-death experiences. And what he was amazed to find out is half, of, at least half of the people came back and were scared to death. They hadn't seen heaven. They'd seen hell or something like it. And these people were shaking in fear and don't let me go back to that, you know. And he says what happens is the reason nobody knows about it because once they recover and leave the hospital, they don't want anybody to know they've been to hell. <laughs> So, so they don't tell anybody about that. But this Dr. Rawlings says, just listening to these patients has changed my life. I am sure that there is a life after death. And he said, that is really important to me. He said, I was a devout atheist. But after viewing all these near-death experiences, both positive and negative, it changed my life. And he says, I know now that there is a life after death. And if I don't know where I'm going... It's not safe to die. <laughs> I, I saw, you know, in one of those, one of my C.S. Lewis books, he was talking about uh, death, and he said, uh, somebody put on their, their gravestone, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. <laughs> and then, and then C.S. Lewis wrote, I bet he wishes that were true. Ooh, exactly. Uh, another uh, inscription on a tombstone read, Consider, young man, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon shall be, so prepare yourself to follow me. And some smart aleck had written down at the bottom, To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. And so the bottom line, I think everybody realizes, is this life is not all there is. There's the afterlife, and that afterlife exists in eternity. So there are two different eternal realities, and all of us shall spend eternity in one of two places. Right? That's the problem, or that's the solution. One theologian said, now this is controversial, and I'm saying it just for shock value because I want everybody to, you know. 
The theologian said, hell exists. You know, people don't want to believe hell exists. But this guy says, hell exists because of God's love. Notice the quiet. (laughs) I was like, you. I read that and I went, what? Okay, here's what he means. Even though that sounds like a paradox, he said, God made us with a free will. We're made in the image of God. And the biggest part of that image is being like God, being Uh, made in his image with free will, to choose to love him and obey him or not to choose. Uh, He didn't want us to be robots. He didn't make robots. He didn't computer program us so that we had to do something. It's a free will. It's a choice, right? And because a choice is, uh, you know, the the choice, the, the consequences really determine the value of the choice. I mean, if you chose iced tea or water, there's no consequences, so it's not that big a deal. But when you have a choice of eternal life or eternal damnation, the consequences are huge, right? And so what he's saying is, is that God put these two choices out there, to be with him in eternity and love him and obey him, which is the reason he created us, or the alternative, if there was no choice, then the decision wouldn't be very... I mean, if there was no consequences, the decision wouldn't be very important, would it? So God made it that choice to love him and follow him and serve him and glorify him as the most important choice any of us will ever make. So that's what he means by hell exists because of God's love. God loves us and he wants us to come. He made us with free will and wants us to come, loves us, so that we will come, gives us every opportunity to come, but if we don't, the consequences are huge. Okay? Mark Twain said, you know, when people, people's view of heaven is, is really uh, amazing. You remember the great author Mark Twain? He said, well, I think I'll choose heaven for the climate and hell for the social life. <laughs> he wanted it both ways. Ted Turner, Ted Turner, you know, the guy that, that, that uh, started TNT and TBS and super wealthy guy, he says, look, all my friends and all the interesting people I know, will, they're going to be in hell. He says, and who wants to go to a boring place that's perfect like heaven? We can go to hell and have a chance to make it better. <laughs> He's, I mean, think of the warped, twisted mind of all these people that think that way. I mean, it's mind-blowing. Uh, so what can we learn today? Hopefully you've looked forward to the parable. Uh, you got the message I sent out. You've already read up. You're prepared. I can tell. There's no blank faces in here. Usually some Bible studies I teach. But this group here, I mean, they're studious. They're always prepared. I'm so proud of you. What do we learn from this parable, the rich man and Lazarus? Number one... There's a great reversal. Quite often what's, what's you know, a big deal here will not be in heaven, and what's not a big deal will be in heaven. Everything is subject to a reversal, okay? And that's kind of shocking. Heaven and hell are real places. I think that's pretty clear in this parable. And they are fixed for eternity. You can't change it. Wherever you go, 
the decision is irreversible. You got the rest of this life to make the choice, but once you're there, it's irreversible. And more important, hell is avoidable. You don't have to have that. You don't have to go there. And next one is you can't justify yourself. The two big issues that provoke the parable, remember there's always something that provokes Jesus to tell these stories. Uh, the, The two big issues are the Pharisees were those who justified themselves. They were self-righteous. They said, we keep the law. We're righteous. We're going to heaven. Uh, not so much for y'all. You know, we're the leaders. We're the great ones. And they, you know, w- when you have that kind of self-righteousness, you kind of look down on other people, and that's where they were. So they justified themselves. And, of course, what we're going to find out is you can't justify yourself. God alone can justify us. And so Jesus corrected that misunderstanding in the parable. The other thing is, uh, some of the people, some of the things people love, God detests. So, as I said, if you love money, if you love your stuff, God detests it. And that's a tough thing to say. But it's important to know what God loves and God detests. God loves your love for him. God loves your obedience for him. God loves a relationship with you, right? But he detests idolatry, which is the love of anything other than him or put in the place of him. Next, the word of God is is a sufficient witness. How many people have you ever heard say, well, if God would just show himself... You know, if I could just see him, if I could, somebody could prove to me that he's there, right? And in the parable, you see, you know, they say, no. It wouldn't matter if somebody comes back from the dead. That wouldn't matter to them. And, of course, that's a real profound thing to say because Jesus healed three different people in his, during his ministry that, that, and brought them back from the dead. And then, of course, Jesus came back in his resurrection, left an empty tomb. And there with that evidence, what did they do with the evidence of the empty tomb? They bribed the guards to lie about it. So all the evidence in the world, if somebody denies Christ and has rejected him and has a hard heart in it, it, there is no evidence that, that can convince them. And he says in the parable, the word of God, the scriptures, are a sufficient witness. And if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly explaining to his audience that the scriptures have testified to him and that everything he's doing is a fulfillment of the scriptures that they know. They had the Old Testament. They had the prophets. Here he is fulfilling all these prophecies. See? He's doing miracles. He's teaching with the authority of God. And yet they still don't believe. They're that hard-hearted. And then the last thing I want you to see in this parable is five minutes in hell turned the man into an evangelist. Think about that. Here's this guy that cares nothing about God. It's all about him and all his stuff and his luxury and pleasure. And then he's five minutes in hell and he's saying, send somebody back to tell my family. I want everybody to know about this. Right? That's kind of an eye-opener, isn't it? 
So the parable is a, is a study in dramatic contrast. I think Jesus uh, purposely you know, has this severe contrast between the rich guy and the poor guy. I mean, it, you couldn't get further ends of the spectrum. All that to build the drama of what he's trying to teach them. Um, and as great as the contrast in their, their lives, even greater was their contrast in the afterlife. So you have both contrasts. It's in two scenes. It's the earthly scene, and then it's the afterlife scene. And when you think about it, why did the rich man, remember in the parable, the rich man calls over to Lazarus. Why did he call over to Lazarus to come over? He wanted Lazarus to show him mercy and compassion. Think about that. He wanted Lazarus to give him the mercy and compassion that he never showed Lazarus in life. And, of course, it's too late. Why is it so dangerous to entrust your security to wealth and possessions? Two reasons. Riches cannot provide salvation. And secondly, riches are temporary and passing away. So everything you have, all your stuff, all the money, uh, is, is, you know, it's temporary. You, know, you leave here, you came in naked, you leave naked right? But if people live like that's not true, they live like they're going to be able to take it with them, okay? Uh, we, we were talking at the, at the table about, you know, this concept that people have uh, when they have it really well here, they somehow just make a, an assumption that it's going to be great for them uh, in the afterlife as well. And I remember, you know, studying uh, world religions and uh, Hinduism, everybody in India, you know, if you, if you go to India, you'll see what, exactly what's going on in this parable, or any number of nations, any, just about any third world nation is true. You've got this incredible, lavish display of wealth, and then right next to it, you know, is a slum with people who are starving and have nothing. But the amazing thing, that's not so amazing as the attitude of Hindus, the attitude of, of people in India is... They deserve it. It's called karma. And so in their Hinduism, which teaches the law of karma, they're basically saying, we're here because we deserve it, because how good we've been before. And they're there because of how bad they were. They deserve it. There's no reason for us to intervene in that. You know, make them suffer. So Hinduism is anti-humanitarian. I, I even had a guy from India who's now a Christian say, you know, that's one reason, you know, they're held back so much. Their economy's even held back by that, that, that view of karma, you know. Uh, and so if you are in, really in any religious system where you think you're saved by works, then you're going to see yourself in a different light. You're going to say, well, everything that's good that's happening to me now, the reason I have money and good health is because I'm a good person. And they obviously are not. And that was actually the teaching of the first century religious leaders when Jesus was there. That, they taught that, see. And so with that in view, you know, you've got these Pharisees who justify themselves and look down on the others who don't have it so good. They deserve it. Of course they're starving, you know. They're not good like me. And then they take that further to think that because I'm good, 
I'm going to heaven and these sinners are not. So that's the view that Jesus is correcting in this parable, you see. And remember what a parable is. It's a fictitious story that Jesus would tell about something they understood, that they saw every day of their life, you know, the beggars in the streets, to explain a spiritual truth that they did not understand. And so you come away in this parable, it's, it's got to be a shock to their system, as it is to many of us, that the reversal is so dramatic and awesome in the story. Uh, Lazarus in the story, to me, I mean, this Lazarus guy, how could he have it any worse? I mean, this poor guy. Remember the old Rodney Dangerfield routines where he talked about getting no respect? Lazarus is the ultimate Rodney Dangerfield, right? Uh, I remember some of those Rodney Dangerfield jokes. He he, uh, went to the doctor, and he said, Doc, every morning I go to the bathroom and look in the mirror, and I throw up. What is wrong? What, what, what do I have? He said, I don't know, but your eyesight is perfect. <laughs> and that's the kind of respect this poor guy got in the parable. So the questions that, that, you know, that move Jesus to, to give this parable are, why is Jesus appealing to the humble, downtrodden, uh, people like this Lazarus in the deal. Uh, these are people that feel guilty. They acknowledge their sin. Remember the story of Ma- Mary Magdalene uh, and also the, the woman before her in Luke 7? I mean, she was a prostitute. And so she comes and she so much appreciates Jesus and she confesses her sins and repents and she's sitting there weeping and worshiping Jesus and cleaning his feet with her tears. Meanwhile, all these Pharisees are looking on going, what is the deal? He lets this prostitute touch him. This, this is horrible. He's making himself open to all these sinners. So Jesus is explaining you know, their wrong view on that and also giving this parable about the dangers of their riches because the Pharisees also, he says, in verse uh, 14, chapter 16, verse 14, were lovers of money. And they really had, the religious leaders in those days, really had a license to steal. The people really uh, got ripped off by first Rome and then also the uh, religious leaders of of their own nation. And uh, you had this small elite group that made all this money uh, out of the religion, which, you know, what could be worse than that? And then they also justify themselves as being the ones who deserve it because they keep the law and they're the good ones and all these other people are not. So uh, the danger of riches, what, is it, what does it do to you? What is the danger? It is not only distracting, but it makes people complacent. You know, when everything's good like that, what, what do they have to worry about? Who do they need to depend on? Nobody but themselves. So they, they get into self-sufficiency. They have great pride that everything they've done it's because they're smart and they worked hard and they achieved it. It's all about me, see? And, and that becomes a problem because when you're totally focused on yourself and on your stuff, then you never get focused on God, right? You put the, all that in front of him. Um, 
Also, the concept of busyness. You know, when you've got a lot of stuff and several businesses and all kinds of things going on, you're so busy that you don't even have time to think about anything else. The rest of the world, you know, goes away, and God with it. It's all about all this stuff i got to do and all my responsibilities and, and investing all my wealth and on and on and on. So the business is really a, a, an issue. Uh, I, you know, this pride, though, I remember the, uh, my favorite scene in the, in the Patton movie. Remember George C. Scott and Patton? At the very end, Patton has been such a big deal all through the movie. You know, he won all these battles, and everybody you know, just thinks he's the greatest general ever. And he's gotten all this glory, and all through the movie, you know, that's what he's doing. He's seeking glory. To him, that's what life's all about. And then at the end, you know, it's over. There's no more battles to be won. There's no more glory to be had. And he's walking off alone. And the voiceover says, in the old days of the Roman Empire, after the great Roman conquest, they would have a Roman victory parade where the conqueror would ride in a chariot through the streets to the accolades of the people. But there would be an odd fellow standing next to him in the chariot who would be whispering in his ear, all glory is fleeting. (laughs) Didn't you love that? All glory is fleeting, just to bring him back down to earth. Right? Uh, And so that's what Jesus is saying. All this stuff you got, all this immense wealth that you're hoarding, it's fleeting. It's, a, it's short-lived, okay? And so let's look at the parable. Again, that the provoked the parable, verse 14. This is uh, Luke uh, chapter six, 16. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all the things that Jesus was saying, and they were scoffing at him scoffing, you know, make it, you know, like, that can't be right. Can you you just imagine Jesus out teaching these multitude and these guys who are kind of behind him or all around going, wait a minute, that isn't right, or just, you know, heckling him or whatever. And so here's these guys who are lovers with money, and they were scoffing at him, and he said to them, but this is convicting, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men. So to, to men, you can get away with that. But God knows your hearts. God knows what's really going on in here. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. So ask the question, what is esteemed by men and at the same time detestable to God? The, here's this great contrast. Well, again, the loving money, loving stuff, loving possessions, Loving, you know, the, the, the big ego that you have, uh, the pride that builds up, all that, if you put it in the place of God, if that crowds out God, that becomes detestable to him. And so Jesus saw fit to tell this parable that begins in verse 19. Now, first of all, let me make a confession. Uh, a, a confession. When, you, when you look at this poor, this poor Lazarus sap, you know, <laughs> how hard his life is. And you think, okay, here's the rich man enjoying this enormous wealth and the nice clothes and pl- the best food to eat and a great place to live, comfortable, he's, he's healthy. 
And then on the other hand, there's Lazarus, you know, who's diseased and crippled and poor and starving. So which one are we going to choose to be like? (laughs) I got to admit, I'm going to take the rich guy. I'm going to go that way, right? But not so fast. If you add a certain caveat to the equation and tell me that all that stuff is short-lived, that you get that for 40 or 50 years, and then over here in eternity, Lazarus gets the glory and bliss of heaven for eternity. Now, which one are you going to choose? Yeah, so before you knew that, everybody's going to go with the rich guy. But after you believe that, you go with Lazarus. It just makes all the difference in the world. It should make all the difference in the world in your life and your life choices if you believe that to be true. And so Jesus is telling that truth to his audience to enforce you know, how important it is that they get this. Uh, and so in verse 19, it says, There was a certain rich man, and he habitually, Think about what that means, the concept of habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. He did all that habitually, which means it was a constant thing that he did all the time. There was no let up. It was all about, he wanted life to be one big amusement park and to always, you know, have a full stomach and everything to be great, probably spent a lot of time planning vacations and, you know, <laughs> what the next meal was going to be. And, uh, so he did that habitually, a constant uh, in his life. And when you look at, you know, the, what all this means, the purple and fine linen, in those days, purple dye was incredibly expensive. Only rich people could even afford it. So he had the finest, most expensive clothes, gaily living in splendor. And so this is kind of like a hyperbole, exaggeration that Jesus is giving to make a a huge contrast between the two guys. On the other hand, verse 20, a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate. The guy couldn't even walk there. People would carry him up and just dump him off there at the gate because there was so much food being, being eaten inside he hoped that some crumbs would fall off of this as the people left the banquet. You know, some crumbs might fall and he might just get something to eat or somebody would have mercy on him and give him something. So a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate and he's covered with sores, so he's diseased as well. And he was longing to be fed even the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. And besides that, you think, well, God, that's as bad as it can get. No. Even the, the street dogs didn't have mercy on him. Even the street dogs were coming and licking his sores. No respect from them either. And here's what happens, though. It came about that the poor man died. So now you're going to have, that was scene one, that earthly scene of the contrast between them. Now we're moving to scene two, which is the heavenly seen the afterlife it came about verse 22 the poor man died and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom 
Now, that's a, that was a Jewish concept. Abraham was the great patriarch of Israel. And so what they longed to do is go in the afterlife to be in heaven with their great patriarch, Abraham, and see him. Like right now, what do we say? St. Peter will be at the gate. So we, we uh, tell all the jokes and stories about that. Well, they did basically the same thing, but they used Abraham. So when you went to, quote, Abraham's bosom, what were you saying? When I go to heaven to have intimacy and close fellowship with our great patriarch Abraham. And they would, you know, he had a Jewish audience, so he, they would know exactly what he was saying. So he went there to where Abraham was, to his bosom, and probably there's a big banquet on because this idea of, of, it makes me think of, remember the Last Supper when they're around the table and John said that he leaned up against Christ's bosom or chest or side, however you translate it. So it's that kind of banquet that's going on that uh, this poor Lazarus guy is suddenly graduated to be at the table with Abraham. So, boy, things have changed. A complete reversal in heaven of his circumstances. And as you go through it, uh, remember that it is understood in the parable, it is implied and understood that Lazarus is a believer, believes God, believed in God, and the rich man did not. You'll, you'll see the implication as we go through it. You, you can't miss it. Uh, and so that's, that's an understood thing in this. He, he didn't go to, I say that because he didn't go to heaven because he was poor. <laughs> that has nothing to do with it. And the other guy didn't go to hell because he is rich. That, that's, that wasn't the, the reasons. One went to heaven because he's a believer, and the rich man went to hell because he was an idolater. He loved money. Abraham's bosom, on the other hand, the rich man died, and he was just buried, you know. <laughs> they buried him, and that's it for him. There was no angels to greet him and carry him to heaven to be with Abraham. And what happens? Verse 23, and in Hades, uh, the New Testament, that's a Greek word for uh, a lot of different things. Sometimes it's translated grave. Sometimes it's translated the, the, uh, the abode of the unbelieving dead. Um, but almost always it, it's a, a word for hell. That's, that's the basic meaning of it. So in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he was in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Now this is not theology to make the point that when you're in hell, you can see the people in heaven or vice versa or anything like that. It's just part of a fictitious story to make a point. Or maybe you can. I don't know. <laughs> but I don't think you get your theology about what, you know, about that kind of thing from the, the details of these um, parables. So he cries out and he begs Abraham to have mercy on him and send Lazarus. I think he still thinks of Lazarus as some kind of servant. Send that servant guy over here to help me and to have mercy and compassion on me because I am in agony. Send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame. Pretty severe. 
pretty severe consequences for this guy. The contrast is, is building. And Abraham said, child, remember that during your life you received your good things. So when this guy, he's, he represents the Pharisees, by the way. I think you figured that out. And what did, what did they do? Lovers of money and justified themselves. So in the parable, what Jesus is basically saying is, okay, when you were in the world and you loved money, you enjoyed it, and you justified yourself before men, so you got all the acclamation, all the pats on the back that you were looking for, but now that that life's over, that's done. That's, that's over. That's all you get. Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, all the stuff that you were after, all the stuff that you wanted, the stuff that you made a choice to have. Love of money and acclamation of, of men. You got all that. On the other hand, Lazarus had, Lazarus had bad things. So he got just the opposite. But now, the great reversal, he is being comforted here and you are in agony. So great contrast again. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that is fixed. That means it's irreversible. You can't leave there and go here. And we can't leave here and go there. It's, it's done. It's a done deal. It can't be undone. This is the way it is forever. And it's that chasm's there in order that anybody who wishes to come over from here may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, okay, if you can't help me, I beg you, Father, that you send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And I was thinking about the warning. Let me see, the people he's talking about, you know, the, the audience that Jesus had in those days, what witness did they have? What testimony did they have? Well, was the feeding of the 5,000 enough? How about walking on the water? Would, would that have done it? Uh, how about raising people from the dead? I mean, how many miracles do we have to do to be a witness to these guys? And that's, of course, what Abraham says. Look. They had the witness of all the scriptures and all the prophets. If they're not going to listen to that, and they're, they're not going to see fulfillment in Jesus of all that, they're in anything that's going to convince them. They're just not interested. And so Abraham says, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear Moses and the prophets. But, Lab, but uh, rich man wouldn't take no. He said, oh, no, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will surely repent. Surely if somebody comes back from the dead, that will get their attention and they'll repent. Is that right? But he said to him, Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. And of course that's, wow. Is that a powerful thing for Jesus to say? Not only has he already raised uh, three people from the dead, the real Lazarus being one of them, but also 
Jesus is going to come back from the dead. And all these people all, that are audience in all this are going to see an empty tomb. And what are they going to do with that? They're still not going to believe. They're that willful, hard-hearted. They're still not going to believe. So the contrast in the uh, parable, you've got two different lives here on earth. Then you've got two different deaths, two different destinies. And as I said before, the word Lazarus means he whom God helps. And so you have God's help versus the absence of help from man for Lazarus. God's help in heaven and the absence of help for people who are in need from people on earth. So a great uh, contrast there in that area. So let me uh, conclude with uh, some observations. Um, in verse, uh, l- l- first of all, go to a uh, great story. Go to Luke 13 if, if you have your Bible open. If not, you know, I'll just read it for you. In Luke 13, verse 1 through 5, Luke 13, verse 1 through 5, uh, they asked Jesus a question. And it's a good question. They said, you know, all those Galileans, apparently some some men in Galilee were making religious sacrifices, and some of Pilate's soldiers just came in and killed a whole bunch of them. I don't know if they didn't like them or they wanted them out of the way or what, but they just slaughtered, wholesale slaughter of all these guys. And so the question is, what did they do to deserve that? Were they bigger sinners than other people? Did they get what they deserved or what? And in verse 2, Jesus says, No. Are you kidding me? You think those guys are worse than everybody else? Not at all. He says, We live in a fallen world where bad stuff happens. And it happens indiscriminately. Just as many people, just as many Christians get sick from one thing or another, as non-Christians, percentage-wise. We live in a fallen world where stuff happens indiscriminately. It's not based on how much sin or how little sin you've committed, see? And so Jesus says what's important for you to focus on and to recognize is not why this happened. That's what we always do, and and we're all like that, me too. I always find myself, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? And Jesus' question, his answer is, because you live in a fallen world. And that's that's what happens in this world. You know, God said in the very beginning, if you disobey me and rebel and go your own way and don't love me, it's going to mean death. And of course, when he meant that, that meant separation from God, which has enormous consequences which is all this evil stuff that happens in the world. See, so Jesus is saying, that's not what you should focus on, and that's what's not so important. What you need to do is to repent and believe before you also perish. All those guys died in the Galilee? You can't figure out why, but what you need to do is repent and believe before that happens to you, because it will eventually. And then he brings up another situation in verse 4. Luke 13, verse 4. 
18 people died when a building fell on them. How about that? You're just walking down the street and a building falls on you. Right? I mean, it sounds like something that happened to Rodney Dangerfield. And the question is, why did that happen? What did they do to deserve that? And Jesus, again, same thing. No, that didn't happen because they were bigger sinners. No. He says, again, that stuff just happens indiscriminately. But what's important is that you repent and believe in Jesus before you also perish. That's what it's all about. So the offer's out there. You've got to make a choice, right? And if things are not going well for you, what do you think? If things are not going well for you, then you still see life as in God's hand. You still believe in him, and you remember that this is all about him, and there's going to be a great reversal in heaven. Everything will be like I actually want it to as opposed to now. Uh, So your hope is in the future. If you have it bad here, your hope is in the future and what God's going to do. On the other hand, if you're healthy, wealthy, and wise now, there's a danger. Be careful. And we need to remember what the Scripture says. 